LinkedIn presents. Hello and welcome to another episode of Redefining Work Reports. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and um, yeah, it's good to be back in the studio. Last week, I was out in California recording my first LinkedIn learning instructor video. And uh, if you missed last week's Redefining Work Reports, check that out. And one of the things I wanted to do in creating that was to you know, really kind of um, you know peel back the curtain, so to speak, give a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to produce a course for LinkedIn Learning. And so I've been sharing some posts uh, on LinkedIn just about what that experience was like in terms of the, you know, getting in, creating an outline, writing a script, and then last week, actual production. So yeah, I mean, that's anywhere from wardrobe to makeup to staring at a teleprompter in a dimly lit room and uh, a lot more. So it was a really great experience. Um, the team, the, you know, the production team at LinkedIn Learning is just top notch. So it was really awesome to work with them. And they um, made what was a new experience for me, um, you know, really, uh, really as normal as that sort of a thing can be. So anyway, check that out. You can learn more about that course. And the course is going to drop. It's part of their new uh, HR Foundations curriculum. So they're going to be revamping their HR curriculum, and this will be part of that series. It'll be dropping at some point in Q3 date TBD, uh, but we'll definitely let you know when I get a little bit more clarity on that so you can check it out. So back to the here and now. Um, this week, I wanted to focus the Redefining Work Reports podcast on a recent report from Greenhouse. Uh, Greenhouse has been really sharing some great content on recruiting over the years, uh, including their annual candidate experience report. And their 2023 candidate experience report just dropped. And so I had a chance to go through uh, those results and findings and wanted to spotlight a few of those to you uh, that I think might be helpful as you think about designing your t people, talent, and recruiting programs. Um, so let's get into the, the data set first. So this report was based on uh, a data set of 1,200, over 1,200 U.S.-based employees. Um, so I want to kind of put that caveat in there. This is uh, U.S. data specifically. So for those of you listening outside of the U.S., you know, while I imagine some of these numbers will still be relevant for you, uh, do know that the data set that uh, the numbers are coming from are based on U.S. employee responses. So let's kind of start there with a, a geo uh, update on kind of where the data comes from. But <clears throat> they basically took the data, they took the findings, and they carved it up in a couple different areas. Um, and I want to start where they started, which is around the topic of hybrid work. Um, you know, you've seen the headlines, you've seen companies like Google and Facebook and others start to really... Uh, take the hybrid work and make that more hybrid on their terms uh, and getting people back into an office. I kind of featured Google specifically starting to look more now at um, attendance as a data point in merit and performance reviews and actually keeping track of you know people who are hybrid, how often they're coming into the office uh, and really working to get them into the office more. So Yes, hybrid is here to stay. Yes, there are companies that are starting to push people back into an office 
um, more so. Um, but yes, there are also many companies that remain committed to hybrid and fully distributed and remote. So again, there's no doubt that these numbers of kind of the makeup of companies that were fully co-located hybrid or uh, fully distributed would vary, right, as we kind of move through the pandemic. And so what's happening now isn't necessarily surprising. You know, I think there are some companies, obviously, who had made firm commitments to hybrid or remote who are backtracking on those. And, you know, that's a tough situation because you've got employees who've made life decisions based on that. And now you're taking that away. And so, uh, again, getting the data here, that's going to cost some companies talent. So let's get into the the data on the greenhouse report. So um, as it relates to hybrid work, you know, first data point is that the large majority, about 76% of candidates said that they would actively search for or be open to a new job if their company rolled back their flexible work policies. So again, that analogy I opened with, if you are a Google, if you are a Facebook and you had made firm commitments, you know, a Twitter to hybrid and remote work, and now you're backtracking on that, you know, about three quarters of your employees may not want to be back in the office as much as you want them to, and they might start looking for a job. So again, 76% of candidates say they'd actively search or be open to a new job if their company rolled back their flexible work programs. And for a little more context on workplace flexibility, I asked Greenhouse Chief People Officer Donald Knight for his input. When I think about like top three things that the data is telling us based on their voice, there's a couple call outs, I would say. The first one would be that 76% of employees that are actively searching are looking for companies that have not rolled back their flexibility on flexible work policies. Now, that's important because that means people have found out that in the pandemic that hybrid work is here to stay. This idea that companies can offer flexibility as a perk that they can turn on and turn off, I think those days are gone. And I think what has happened is the the pandemic has accelerated this belief that for candidates, they need flexibility in their life. They have found a way to be both productive and impactful, but doing so in a way that doesn't require them to have to go into a physical structure every day or at a set time. And so companies that are looking for ways to make sure that they speak to uh, flexibility and how their company um, employs talent, I think is going to go over really, really well. And when you think about hybrid and flexible work, you know, one of the areas, obviously, that's an area in the headlines lately. Another is pressure on diversity, equity, inclusion programs. And I'm not just talking about Florida being Florida, although we should talk about that. But I'm talking about some of these programs are starting to be under fire even more. And some of the conversations that are being twisted by, you know, certain perspectives, whether it relates to CRT or other programs, obviously Florida is in the headline a lot for many of their backwards thinking uh, around DEIB initiatives, but the, the broader, um, you know, progress we've made over the last couple of years in equality uh, is also, you know, hitting some headwinds right now. Um, and I think when you look at hybrid work, this is another area where this is coming into play. Uh, according to their data, candidates from historically underrepresented groups are nearly a quarter more likely to look for jobs if their company no longer offers flexible policies. I think that exact number is 22%. 22% of 
of employees from underrepresented groups uh, would be more likely to look for a job if their company no longer offers flexible policies. So again, you know, organizations and companies are going to make the decisions they feel they have to make for their business, but those decisions will have costs one way or another. And this is another data point to think about if you're in an organization that's considering rolling back your hybrid work structures. Um, and then when it comes to hiring, you know, there's also going to be challenges there. 42% of candidates would not apply to a role if it doesn't offer their preferred working model. Um, and according to the same survey, about 40% of candidates prefer hybrid uh, and about 12% prefer fully remote. And so again, looking into that, you know, about half of candidates won't apply to a job that doesn't offer their preferred working model. You know, look, the great news is that whatever you're into, there's something for you, right? Some people are desperate to be in an office five days a week. You'll have that option. Some people will want to have, you know, be able to work from home and work remotely, work flexibly, but also be able to go into an office when they want. Great. You're going to have that option. And some people will never go back into an office. You will also have that option. So I think really this comes down to choice. And I think, you know, even with more companies getting people back in an office more, candidates will still have choice. Employees will still have choice because these three modes of working are here to stay. You know, another section that the report got into is around pay transparency. Uh, and again, is this is a U.S. Uh, data set. Uh, obviously, in the U.S., we have a range of states that are you know mandating that employers publish salary reigns on job descriptions. You know, recently joined by California and Rhode Island, also Colorado, New York. Um, you know, we're, we're hitting a certain density right now. Then, unless you are recruiting in specific states only, this applies to you. Uh, and this also applies to global companies who are hiring in the U.S. Um, so let's get into the impact of not doing that, right? So let's just say that you are hiring somewhere where you are not uh, legally required to include a range. Um, so you have a choice, right? You could include it, you could not include it. But according to Greenhouse's data, almost half of their respondents would be more likely to apply to a job posting if it included a salary range. So 43% of respondents are more likely to apply to a job posting if it includes a salary range, while 21%, almost a quarter, are less likely to or will not apply to a role if it does not include one. So again, you you include a comp range, you're going to have almost half of respondents in this data set saying that they're more likely to apply to your role. And if you don't, you've got a, almost a quarter that say they will be unlikely to apply to your job. So again, it's just smart it makes sense from a recruiting perspective. Look, as a recruiter, you've got to optimize your funnel, right? And this is a component of that. And yes, there's, you know, there's morally, ethically, legislatively, there's lots of reasons uh, why you should do this. But I'm going to put those all aside for a moment. I'm just going to talk to the recruiters out there. Look, if you are recruiting in a role, you want to have a real optimized funnel. You want to be able to have candidates self-select how they align or not with your role with as much data as possible. And that includes not just the role and the work and the location and, uh, you know, hiring manager and things like that, but also comp is a component of that. And again, it just makes sense on a range of reasons. And here's some data to help support uh, if you are in those organizations that, you know, 
maybe are not as progressive or pushing back on the idea uh, or don't understand the value and why you would do that. Um, if the legislative reasons aren't moving them uh, and aren't compelling, hopefully this data will be. Uh, one of the things that the report also went into that I found was pretty interesting is they talked about some of the things that make job listings more attractive. You know, this is coming on the heels, you know, last uh, month, LinkedIn reduced, sorry, LinkedIn released their candidate uh, recruiting surveys, kind of state of recruiting, and found that the top three drivers for candidates were flexibility, uh, hybrid work, and compensation. So, you know, getting a sense of the kind of macro trends, that was a global study of what candidates are looking for. I believe those three top three were the same the prior year too. So those top three are holding steady year over year for the last two years. Um, but this report gets a little bit more granular into things that you can uh, put in a job description or things that candidates can see that might make them more uh, intrigued by the role, more likely to apply. So let's get into a couple of what those things are. One is a four-day work week. Um, candidates find this compelling. Not surprising, right? Especially with all the you know, data we have around employees' desires for flexibility and choice. Um, over half of their survey respondents, 56%, said that they would apply to a job that does offer a four-day work week. So again, we've seen some companies pilot this program. We've seen you know, the conversation. I don't know that it's necessarily increasing. I'm not necessarily seeing more of it. Um, at least not at a scale. I think it's still kind of a, a niche offering. Um, but I have read some studies that, um, you know, obviously companies that have embraced this have seen some positive outcome and, and not a hit on productivity, which I think is one of the biggest, um, you know, comment that detractors and opponents would offer as to why you wouldn't want to do that. But um, again, looking at the data here, all over half said they would apply to a job if you do offer a four-day work week. Let's go back to Donald Knight for more thoughts on workplace flexibility. When I looked at the data, it let me know that 42% of candidates said that they will not apply for a role if the company does not demonstrate their preferred working model. And so when you think about like so many places right now are going through a labor shortage, right? We have roughly around 9 million jobs with roughly 6 million people unemployed. So there's a delta of roughly 3 million. You know, if we track that to where we are today, that number's on an uptick to roughly around like 3.6. And so this idea that companies have to do a phenomenal job in their employer branding, speaking to what their work model looks like. And, I, you know, you fast forward or... Fast forward three to five years, this is going to be a main story, mainstay. But if you rewind maybe, you know, one, three, five years, you didn't have companies talking about their work model. It definitely wasn't the standard talking point or sound bite when people would talk about their employee value proposition or their employer brand. So that is something I think companies, they have to pay attention to. So that is a piece that is, uh, you know, a good takeaway. Another would be uh, a reasonable list of requirements can often make or break their decision to apply. Uh, over one-fifth of candidates in Greenhouse's report said they would not apply for a job unless they fit all of the skills required. And those numbers even go higher when you break them down from a gender perspective. You know, women are more likely to apply if they meet all of the criteria. Men are 
uh, less, you know, more likely to apply even if they don't meet all of the criteria. There's lots of data and studies around that. Um, but I think for me, the big takeaway here is just think about your job descriptions, right? Most of job descriptions, I mean, let's just, you know, zoom out a minute. Most job descriptions suck uh, because they're an overly dense list of qualifications and responsibilities and they don't do much to actually help a candidate see themselves in that role. Um, but again, here's some data, you know, the more, you know, the more requirements you have, the more candidates will opt out if they don't feel that they meet all those requirements, particularly women. And so I think that, again, as you're trying to think about how you can action some of the feedback from this report, make those job descriptions, you know, especially the responsibilities and qualifications, really scrutinize those. Do you really have to have that? to be considered. And I know that we just have a history where hiring managers will be like, yep, let's just throw these 20 bullets down for qualifications. And, you know, I'd like to see all of these. I think it's our jobs as recruiters to really push back on that, right? That's why we want to be trusted advisors of the business. We want to be able to say, hey, look, you know, do we really need this? And explain, again, here's some data to help you explain now why that is not the best approach and how it's going to actually cost you qualified candidates. So, and just a consideration there. Um, and then one other element on the infamous black hole that we talk about in recruiting. Um, we've been talking about this for a long time, just like we've been talking about candidate experience for a long time. Um, but there's some data here as well. I mean, 67% of candidates say they've been ghosted by employers after a job interview. So this isn't even a black hole, right? This is like, I've already interviewed. And I'm hearing nothing back. And that is just shitty. Like, I'm sorry, we shouldn't be doing that to candidates. Like, the, you know, we shouldn't be doing the having a black hole for applicants, uh, you know, but we absolutely should not. This is almost two thirds of candidates, you know, of their 1,200, uh, you know, person data set in this report who have been ghosted after a job interview. Um, and what's even worse is that historically underrepresented candidates face an almost 25% higher chance of being ghosted. That is awful. And again, if somebody is taking the time to interview with you and your company, whether it's a phone screen, whether it's a, you know, a, a pre-assessment, whatever it might be, this is this is not good. You've got you owe it to them to respond at least an email, if not a phone call, but some sort of response to close the door, let them know. You know, searching for a job, we all know it's a highly emotional process, and if we can't support them, if we can't, uh, you know, close the door, so at least they know where they stand, we're doing them a disservice, and we're doing the industry a disservice. So again, please be motivated by this number, and make sure you're getting back to people after interviews. Let's bring it back to Donald Knight for more context on the subject. You know, roughly 67% of respondents said that they have been ghosted by employers after a job interview. And I think the biggest thing that I, I, I can't stress this enough, Lars, the first impression companies are making with their candidates is a phenomenal one if they choose to opt into the interview process. But candidate experience doesn't just matter if you hire someone. It also matters if you don't hire them. So that last impression that companies are leaving with talent in the market is not a good one if they're not responding to them, letting them know where do they stand in the process. 
Where are there opportunities for them to even improve? Or let them know that you've already moved on by hiring someone else. Um, I think that last impression, if companies do not pay attention to this, when the economy starts to rebound, which we know it does, right? We know that economic headwinds are cyclical. We know that we've seen roughly 10 um, recessions in the U.S. since the 1950s. So we know that these things are cyclical. But companies that are choosing to leave a bad taste in the minds and in the hearts of candidates that they themselves have deemed top-notch enough to go through the interview process, I don't think that's going to fail well. I think what will happen is companies that do not prioritize making a positive last impression, those candidates will do what candidates do, which is talk. They're going to share with their friends. They're going to share with their family members. They're going to share with their colleagues what companies they should and should not want to park their time, talent, and treasure. And so, you know, as a company that focuses on the hiring process, what this tells me, what the candidate data is telling me is that onboarding is important, but so is offboarding. And offboarding does not just sit with employees that are leaving an organization and moving into an alumni status. Offboarding also sits with the candidate experience. And so companies have to do a better job there. And there's one other interesting data point in here as well around an organization's commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. You know, we mentioned earlier in the podcast how those programs have been under fire and certainly are backtracking in some cases. Um, but in their report, 16% of respondents said that employers' lack of commitments to DEI-B has led them to seek work elsewhere. Again, really emphasizing that DEI is a true priority for a lot of today's candidates. So 16%, uh, if you're not really investing and taking DEIB seriously, they're going to walk. And so anyway, I found that interesting. Again, lots of data points here for those of you that need data to maybe tweak and amend some of your programs. Uh, hat tip to Greenhouse for always doing a great job of putting these types of reports together to help us understand some of the macro trends in the industry. All right. So what are the key takeaways and what should recruiters really know and action on this report? Back to Donald for some final thoughts. So like, what are three things I think recruiters have to be able to do moving forward? You want to close candidates, speak to your work model. Speak to the work model. You got to be able to let people know what type of flexibility exists in your organization or what guardrails exist around how talent, how candidates are expected to either show up uh, and work in physical locations or be able to be intentional in what a hybrid model looks like. So that's the first thing. Recruiters have to be able to speak to that. I think the second thing is those candidate pages, those career pages, they have to be able to speak to all of the flexibility because a person may not even opt into the interview process if they cannot see what type of flexibility a company is willing to put in writing. That's the second thing. We got to go get some modern career pages where people are speaking to this. Last but certainly not least, offboarding. Offboard your candidates the right way. Make the extra effort to make sure that when people exit your candidate experience, that they are offboarding with a positive last impression. Stop ghosting people. Because if you don't, when the, when the economy bounces back, talent will be able to share which companies are the ones that are prioritizing candidates the right way and which ones can care less of the last impression. So what do you think? 
Was the data surprising? Anything you didn't expect to see here? Uh, any numbers that run counter to what you're seeing? Uh, let me know. Hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to hear your perspective. And uh, in the meantime, that is a wrap for today's episode of Redefining Work Reports. Uh, we'll be back next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and I will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out amplifytalent.com slash podcast. And if you dig this podcast, I strongly encourage you to share it with your CEO, leadership team, and friends to help others discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever your preferred podcast delivery vehicle is. We'll see you next episode.